podcast ain't played nobody your college football marriage of numbers and words i am bill Connolly. i have not introduced one of these in a while i wanted to jump in and say godfrey they're all gonna think that i'm gone sorry to cut you off yeah that's that's true that's pretty much the uh the the giveaway but you're not uh and i gotta ask are you doing the chicken bet this year Ooh, uh, that's a good question. For those of you who don't know, I've engaged in a chicken bet with the college football editor, Jason Kirk, for a number of years now in which the results have been disputed, although there's not much to dispute this year. I bet that Indiana would win seven games and they did not. So I lost this year's bet without any argument. I'm just bringing this up because I can definitively say that this is the year Kansas wins three games. Well, but yeah, but now that you said that on the in the podcast, see all of the other people on our college football team, we all listen to the podcast so we can like, I don't know, ideate off of this junk, which by the way, if you're ever trying to ideate <laughs> off of a shutdown full cast, good lord. Um they're going to know now. If you're if you're that confident Jason's not not going to agree to it. Well, and he's already edited the piece that I'm referring to, which is the uh, annual returning production piece yeah. in which Kansas returns 91% of last year's production, yeah, second most in the country. You, so you just ruined they the bet are, for me. They are ready to surge into the top 110 next year. Bill, you know what we're doing today? Answer our questions. All day long. Hashtag ask PAPN. We've neglected to answer your questions for a couple episodes. We have a bounty of wonderful questions from you, the listener. As always, if you need to ask us a question, if you desire to find your query uh, fulfilled, use that um, hashtag ask PAPN on Twitter. Um, through two-ish years of doing this podcast, we found that to be the most effective means of actually getting us to look at the question and file it away for later. So yeah, this um, is a great idea actually. So well done on that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm noted for my organizational skills. Um, all right, Bill, we've pulled some, we like we've solicited twice this week. We've got a ton. We're just going to jump in. This is the entire show. Lego. You ready? Yep. I'm just going to get all of this out of the way. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit like two or three that I dropped into, um, to our PAP and chat room that we build the show off of <laughs> build the show. Uh, let's talk about the LSU thing. Insminger, Matt Canada, Maryland. Let's just do all that. You want to do all that? Let's just, we, we got to do it all yes. because uh, I have so many questions from so many people. We've, I ducked it out at first because I didn't really know what's going on. Um, I guess let's just, we'll, we'll start in football terms. Let's do it, do it that way, I guess. Um, Tyler Bauer at T underscore Bauer 97. Congrats for the first question is Matt Canada's move to Maryland still a P five, but definitely a step down from LSU indicative of him being viewed more negatively in coaching circles, or is it simply a case of relatively few good jobs being open? Um, Adam Henderson asks, let's do some doomsday prepping. LSU develops a competent passing attack under Brennan slash Insminger. What type of numbers does he have to put up? to put uh what, what i'm sorry what type of numbers does he have to put up to push back the quote L- lol lsu passing narrative nationally and justify our promotion well, i think we have more hang on um <laughs> oh yes our buddy billy gamilla um thoughts on bill weighing in on returning starters production versus recruiting rankings particularly on defense example of my own team lsu has some stars back at dllb cornerback tons of second year guys who saw lots of time in 17 let's do this Let's start talking about LSU that way first. Okay. Okay. What is LSU returning and what is a reasonable expectation regardless of the Canada Insminger OC change for 2018? 
Okay. I'm pulling up uh, their returning production numbers. So the, uh, the, you know, the thing that I posted earlier today, not good for LSU, uh, not good at all. They are very low on the list. Actually, they're below that 50% mark, which um, pretty much, I'm not going to say it guarantees problems, but uh, let's see, what did I post today? So there have been in the last, what, three, four years, there have been 56 teams to hit below that 50% mark uh, in terms of returning production. 48 of them got worse the next year. Uh, 86% of them regressed, uh, and and half of those 56 teams regressed by at least a touchdown. Uh, LSU is right at 48%, so they're in that danger zone. Um, and now, I mean, if you are... Uh, you know, number one, a lot of that uh, returning production or lost production is Danny Edling. And so, you know, you can easily convince yourself that, hey, that's fine. He sucks. You know, next guy's going to be easily as good. So that's not a problem. Uh, I disagree to some degree, but Miles Brennan is a very well-touted prospect and could be very good. Um, A lot of that returning or lost production is running back where it's hard to ever actually worry about LSU. Um, so maybe maybe everything's fine there. They still have, I believe, Nick Brissett coming back, uh, and then who, which uh, whatever new names pop up, they're going to always have good running backs. Um, so if you want to look at it that way, if you want to, you know, assume that the linebacking position isn't going to regress because they lost three got three of their top four. If you're going to assume that there's talent up front, like uh, I know they have that Fahoko kid from. Texas Tech coming in. They still have Richard Lawrence. Um, if you're going to believe that the defensive line isn't really going to regress all that much, despite uh, returning production or a lack of returning production, that's all fine. I mean, you can. Uh, there's a case to be made for that, but they're they are absolutely starting out the second season in the danger zone, and that's a weird spot to be in because I know when we were talking during the year about um about edo and all that you you were saying you know he was looking at his depth chart thinking or like last year's team thinking okay that guy's gone that guy's gone man we're kind of starting over here uh the, right. double, the double dip there if, if it feels like you're starting over and then you lose a bunch of guys the next year that's a really tricky place to be they they were inevitably going to have to manage the the transition Right. They were they were going to have to look at a situation. It wasn't going to be seamless as as excellent a recruiter as Ed Orgeron is. They were still going to be transitioning out of the old roster of guys that were recruited by the previous staff, which did include Ed and a lot of the assistants that are still there. But it's a regime change. And this was going to happen. Is it, the question we can ask is I, I could I could say Bill is eight and four likely. And you could say, OK, we're probably right. And then we go back and say, well, is eight and four tolerable. Right. It might have to be. Now, the problem is, I don't I don't know if I don't know what kind of it gets it gets worse down there at eight and four, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Given the situation, just from a pure football standpoint, it doesn't make sense to be outraged if you're an LSU fan, regardless of whoever the coach is, if they finish eight and four in 2018. That would make that would be equal to commiserate with what we're seeing in terms of that roster. And by the way, in case I get asked, um, that returning production figure includes the production of Jonathan Giles, the Texas tech transfer. Um, and because he was playing at Texas tech, that's a humongous amount of production that got added into the equation. So yeah. without Giles, they would have probably been about last on the list of uh, returning production, but he props up the receiving core a little bit. They obviously lose Chark and Gage, but they get now Giles. Um, the other transfer, they have uh, Thaddeus Moss, I believe, from NC State. He's in there as well. Um, 
So it could be worse. The numbers could be worse. But I mean, there has been when you hire somebody on staff, it, it lends the impression of continuity, especially when you've recruited like LSU did. And so what, like, with, without disputing anything you're saying, that's a hard, that's a hard thing to sell you know, to, to LSU fans, especially like, Hey, this was, this is a rebuild basically, you know, not quite a rebuild, but close. Um, it's hard to sell that when you see all the star recruits and when you see Edo on the staff before he's head coach, it feels like, you know, this isn't supposed to be a rebuild. This was supposed to be building on top of what we were already doing. And so right. it is a tricky situation here. They play Auburn in week three. Oh, geez, you're probably really? going to know you're, you're probably going to, you're probably going to get your zeitgeist measurement in week three. Yeah. yeah. And um, Miami before that too. That's impressive. Yeah. I mean with the, the Miami kickoff, because I, I, I don't know about the, I don't know about Miami yet. I don't know. I mean, look, actually that's a cop out. They, they have to beat Miami because that's the, that's going to be the expectation regardless of what Miami returns. But there's something about that first conference game that I think they're really going to, they're going to just pin his fate on that. Look, he's always going to get, He's always, always going to get the short end of the straw when it comes to evaluation in the media, evaluation amongst people in the, in in college football and the greater industry. Some of that is earned. A lot of it is not. I don't quite understand it as we get further and further away from what he did a decade plus ago at Ole Miss. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's the way it is. Now, Matt Canada, part of the reason <laughs> he has earned some scrutiny is this Matt Canada situation. Part of the reason Matt Canada deserves some of the scrutiny in this in this divorce is that you saw where Matt Canada ended up, no offense to Maryland. The idea in one of those questions that it was just a tight market for for offensive coordinators, do you know how many people went after Matt Canada last offseason? Right. A lot. A lot of major, major names. I mean, when when LSU signed him, Notre Dame was was right on their heels. This is a situation in which Matt Canada comes off equal to or maybe a little bit less than Ed Orgeron as quote-unquote being damaged goods or being someone that's problematic. Now, I don't know a way in which you can argue off what happened, uh, I, I guess what, like the, the quarter mark, the, mid, the mid-year mark of the season in which Orgeron goes to Matt Canada and says, uh, you know, I need you to take out this and this, right, and this and this being, this and this being yeah. like elements of shift in motion, which are sort of, I mean, that is the basis for what he does. He, he is extremely multiple in what he does. He's always been personnel oriented in the places that he's gone, right? There are some jobs he's left where he was loved. There are some jobs he left where he wasn't as loved, but he was always, a, he was always known to be a really, really smart guy, really, 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 really innovative guy and innovative specifically in regard to not fitting personnel to scheme, but scheme to personnel. We talk about this all the time. It really comes down to that. I think great coordinators don't apply a system to players, or I'm sorry, don't apply players to a system. They apply a system to players. Um, that's why sometimes we make really naive questions in the media about like, you know, what, what about your playbook? What about it? a playbook is a very, very large phone book of things. <laughs> coaches, you know what coaches are doing right now, Bill? They're, they're on the phone with each other because it's the dead of the offseason and they're talking about stuff. And then they're inserting some of those ideas into yeah, they're a watching, they're, they're watching tape of other schools right now just out of curiosity. Yeah. yeah. Stealing each other's crap. And then they're sticking that in their playbooks. And so, yeah, then that's quote unquote in their book. But do they have the personnel to run that? Not necessarily. And so therefore they may not have that element of the book. You may not, you may not see it for three or four years. Yeah. There are some coaches that are extremely orthodox and here's what I'm going to call, um, like these, you know, the old, you know, Mike Leach only has eight plays kind of stuff, you know, that, that kind of, you know, 
There is that if you look for it. But yeah, for the most part, it is an assessment of personnel and what can we actually do? Here's how I know how to do it. Um, And, and, you know, uh, Innsminger, I'm not really, it clearly didn't work with Canada. And I think it ended up, as I, I can't remember if I called him this on this show or on a radio gig or whatever, but Matt Canada has proven himself to be a very good bridge burner. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing here. Like he, he probably Edo stepped in and, and did all that stuff at Troy. And I kind of lit him up for it at the time. But I mean, looking back, it's probably, you know, looking back, I kind of know more about how Canada interacts with coaches. Uh, and there's chances, a, a very good chance that was a very hostile relationship or a potentially hostile relationship. And it was probably good to go ahead and end it. And it's not surprising that he fell to Maryland. Timing probably had something to do with that too. Yes, um, absolutely. I think right. timing was a huge issue. And also he won't be at Maryland, but for a year. And he wanted a head coaching job. The people at LSU were prepared for Matt Canada to move on this year before all of this acrimony kind of spilled out because they expected him to go after a G5 head coaching job. They expected him maybe to go to the Mac or maybe to, you know, his name was associated for a hot minute with ULL. So these things, the idea that he was going to be here in 2018, regardless, I think is false. Um, It got managed poorly by LSU in terms of maybe the truth, maybe rumored getting out. Um, in terms of how bad and how, how adversarial he and Ed were. Um, I don't think it's quite as bad as maybe the far corners of tiger droppings would have you think. (laughs) I don't think, I don't think it's quite as amicable as people at LSU would want me to believe. Um, It's almost always in a gray area. And I will say this, going back to the court of public opinion, this is going to hurt Ed Orgeron more because Orgeron's pitch to circumvent the stigma against him and his character and his, his head coaching history was to be a CEO head coach, right? Right. De- to do the Sweeney method at Clemson of hiring huge name, multi-million dollar coordinators and letting those guys run their systems. The problem is this, it blew up on him in one year. Now he still has Dave Aranda and LSU fended off Texas A&M yeah. to keep Dave Aranda. And if anything, I think right away, maybe in the first at least four games of the season in 2018, LSU is going to rely on a defense that doesn't necessarily have a bunch of stalwart returning talent, but based sheerly on experience in the scheme and familiarity with Aranda, they're going to have to do that in the short term as they develop a new identity with Innsbinger. Now, if you go back to the second half of the 2016 season where Innsbinger is calling the plays, I don't understand why people think it's all of a sudden going to be good old boy ball and something similar to most of the Miles regime, say for like the... Mettenberger run where they were actually throwing the ball down the field. I think if anything, Insminger is, is very liberal in his concepts of passing. I think, I mean, you saw it in the first couple games he called, I mean, granted Missouri, the Missouri team, they beat up, beat up on, you know, at at Orgeron's first game as interim head coach, wasn't a great Missouri team. They're in the middle of a lot of issues themselves, but, but that's what Insminger wants to do, right? They, they want to pass to run. They want to spread people out. they, there are some elements I think that Ed thought he was getting with Canada that they saw in just tinkering with what was left of the Cam Cameron book in that second half of the 16, sorry, 16 season. Um, these are all generic kind of, this is all generic kind of stuff. I think the problem is this. There's a perception issue with LSU, with those coaches, with, the, with the, I mean, 
I don't know how to dance around this, but they look at Insbinger as another like y'all y'all, you know, as a, a, a right. y'all y'all being slang for like dumb good old boy because <laughs> of the way he sounds, even though he's a local legend and he's beloved. And that's not the case. Insbinger was a part of some really good, really good staffs at uh, at Auburn. I mean, he's not dumb by any stretch. I've spoken with him before. Um, you know, just because a dude has an accent doesn't mean he, he. What a weird, what a weird place we're in in college football, where it's become so corporate and so nationalized that. You know, normally the backwoods chaw, you know, chaw chomping guy was that that was the archetype for the great coach that you wanted. And now all of a sudden it's like they're not all going to be calculating, you know, uh, uh, masterminds. Right. Aranda is very much that (laughs) emotion, emotionless. Um, you know, he's a guy that uh, other people at LSU, you know, always joke like, oh, if you want to go talk to him, you got to unplug him from the matrix. Like Insbinger's a good old boy. And that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be a bad OC. The problem is this. Tyler's first question about, um, no, I'm sorry, not Tyler's question, but the um, uh, Adam's question about what kind of numbers does he have to put up to uh, to push back the LOL LSU passing narrative. I don't know if they're ever going to do that unless he, and I mean, Brennan comes out and throws for 500 yards against, uh, you know, Miami and then carries that through to that first conference game against Auburn. Yeah, great, but that's not going to happen. Just, just win. win the damn. Just win the damn yeah, games. No, like who can Like you had Mettenberger throwing a, for a, a boatload of yards. Your defense stunk, and the narrative of LSU's passing game holds them back. Just continued right along as soon as it like reverted. So whatever. Don't worry about the narrative. Just win games. That was a lot of. A lot of LSU. Questions at once, really, too. So that was good. By the way, I That's just love that we get to talk about Steve Ensminger's resume again because it's just the greatest thing in the history of the world. Uh, Fire it off. So, okay, nickel, uh, 1982, he is done at LSU. He is done playing for the uh, Hamilton Tiger Cats and the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, he comes back. He starts his coaching career at Nickel State in 1982, moves on to offensive coordinator at McNeese State in 1984, 34 years ago. By the way, uh, Nichols and McNeese are both schools in Louisiana. Keep going. Yes. Uh, Just so people, some people don't know. 1988, Louisiana Tech, offensive coordinator. Uh, 19, uh, after three years of that, he goes to Georgia for, who is that? Ray Goff, I believe. Um, yep. Three years as Georgia's quarterbacks coach and passing game coordinator. Moves on to Texas A&M offensive coordinator in 1994 for three years. Uh, goes to Clemson for two years, 97, 98. Uh, and then what is at the end of the Tommy West era, I believe. Uh, in 2000 and 2002, head coach and AD at Central High School in, uh, where in Louisiana is that? Baton Rouge uh, for three Central is a uh, powerhouse in right. uh, Greater Manager. So he, he coaches there. He coaches a year at West Monroe High School as receivers coach. Uh, he ends up quarterbacks coach at Auburn in 03. He, he t- coaches tight ends at Auburn from 04 to 08. When, who was it? The Tony Franklin experiment bombs. He takes over as offensive coordinator at Auburn in 08. Sounds familiar. And then goes back to Smith Station High School in Alabama uh, as passing game coordinator uh, in Oh, it's in Smith Station, Alabama. That's the name of the town. Okay. Um, enrollment, 1,382 kids. Uh, in, two, in 2009, in 2010, he ends up on Les Miles staff again at uh, LSU. He coaches tight ends for seven seasons or parts of seven seasons, ends up uh, as at OC, goes back to being tight ends coach, then goes back to being OC again. Just a fascinating – you can say that he has now co- he's now been the offensive coordinator or at least passing game coordinator at one, two, three – four different sec schools if you count texas a&m in the 90s 
Uh, with some high schools thrown in plus Clemson and plus three different high schools. Just, I love and he's it. been an assistant at four different, uh, Louisiana Louisiana schools. <laughs> so, uh, real quick before we move on, this is, uh, this is not good. I'm not going to lie. Um, you get Miami at the neutral site opener. It's a game that was scheduled years ago. They have to go to Auburn. Um, they get this year. Their East rotation is Georgia at home. They have to go to Florida again to rectify the whole hurricane scheduling situation. And that's the Dan Mullen coaching staff essentially that beat them into the ground last September. Then they have to, uh, they get the Mississippi state team that actually did that to them that we think is going to be very good in terms of returning production and starters uh, under Joe Moorhead. All of this is before they get Alabama. Although I will say this, I do think it's hilarious that once again, the sec has given them the week off before Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great. Um, it's a tough the, schedule. They they lo- they they give something to Alabama fans to be really mad about when it doesn't end up actually mattering even in the slightest. Oh yeah, of course. Um, and, you know, and then peppered in are the schools that you know, like Ole Miss, will always play as hard as humanly possible against LSU. Yeah, always. I mean, and they so it, and that's a game that really doesn't matter where it's played. Um, they get Louisiana Tech, which isn't that big a deal, but it's another one of those things where they're going to throw themselves as hard as humanly possible. Louisiana, I mean, it would be equivalent to a Troy situation last year. Um, it's just, it's not easy. There's, I mean, this is the, I mean, this is the definition of measuring a coach like Ed Orgeron at one of the top SEC jobs versus any other situation in college football. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much how much more I can add to it. I mean, you're looking at a situation where they could easily have three or more losses before they go to Alabama, or sorry, before they host Alabama. So it's brutal. Now, if he if he runs a streak on this, I don't know at what point you silence everyone. The problem is this again. He could he could run the table on all of this, and then maybe just lose to Georgia, beat Mississippi State. They don't beat Alabama. It's going to be a, a different set of stigmas, but that's that's a whole other yeah, set of conversations problem, for another time. The problem with get ra- getting wrapped up in the stigmas and all that in the first place is that they start over again every single year. You get rid of them. Yes. The next year you lose to Alabama again. Guess what? You're you're back to can't beat Alabama again. And so I do just- think. Well, I, I do think you get a bit of a shift if they because now they now it's a streak building. It's 2010. Is that oh, right? Well, Eleven. Eleven is when they were oh, the field goal game. In Eleven. Yeah, I was there. So eleven. So so now we're now we're creeping into a very very long streak, and then inside that streak is when almost superstition and a lot of you know stigma and dogma and all that stuff gets built in. So maybe one win would would knock some of that backwards a little bit. Let's shift gears dramatically. Okay, ready? Yep. Um, We're gonna go straight into an on brand question. At UF Mark seventy nine says, given that USF just started playing football twenty one years ago in nineteen ninety seven. Uh, if PAPN were to start a program from scratch, which school would be the most interesting candidate to build into a G5 contender and who coaches them? Did, so do we have to find a school that doesn't have a football program or do we find a, a, find a, a, a FCS team? I don't think Mark was clear on this one. Right. It, it, what do you think? You could read it as a program that doesn't have football and you could read it as just like – more of a thought experiment of like any school in the country, what would be the most perfectly placed one if you had started up a program 20 years ago? You can read this in a couple different ways. Hmm. Um, you know, honestly, it's hard to top USF and UCF though uh, because of Florida, you know, and um, I mean, the only other option would be like a Texas school. 
like a um I'm trying to think of somebody who doesn't at least have um FBS level football at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh like Texas State was you know they're they're down in San Marcos. No, 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 San Marcos is pretty far north, never mind. Um No, San Marcos is it's just underneath Austin. Right, yeah, so that's fine. That's that seems like a very good situation and they're kind of yeah. they're they're slow we'll say slowly building there uh under Everett Withers. But um, that seems like a really, really good, like kind of a perfectly place. In fact, I think w- when I wrote my first preview about them in the offseason a few years ago when they moved up to FBS, it was basically that. Like you can't, you can't create a more perfectly placed uh, potential G5 program. Uh, that You still have to have your act together. You still have to make good hires and all that. But I would say something in the Tampa neighborhood would be very good. Something in the Miami mm-hmm. neighborhood would be very good, like a Florida International. Um, I mean, FAU is sort of the answer here. Yeah, yeah um, them too. And, and that you, you get the right coach. You take you have to go to the fire sale and, and you find the, the model that you can't afford with you know some dents and scratches. Um, how about I throw this one out? Okay. You, know what, you know what school people were talking about the most at AFCA this year, and not because it was located there? It was Charlotte. People yeah. were really people were really, really shocked that Charlotte didn't clean house. And I asked why. I can't even name Charlotte's head coach off the top of my head. Um, I kept I was like, why why is everybody talking about Charlotte? Because it's a booming population, yeah. right? It's a lot of people coming in that don't necessarily have uh, family or provincial ties to one school or not. It's a lot of people that aren't necessarily from college football country necessarily that are coming into Charlotte. Mm-hmm. A lot of the talent at the high schools is on the increase. And you have a school with no expectation and a program inside a major city. And they've got money and they've got time. And all of those things are really, really appealing to a lot of head coaches. Um, so I think maybe the answer is something that I, I honestly don't know how to answer this without a school that doesn't already exist. I think what, what they, what they're doing at FAU, whether or not it's sustainable, we won't know until after probably two or three years after Lane leaves. And then I, I like the idea of it. Like Charlotte exists for a reason. I kind of bemoan those schools because of what's going on with conference USA and the fact that they just can't make money off of them. <laughs> but from a coaching standpoint and from an eventually winning football game standpoint, I think Charlotte, it makes a ton of sense. And I mean, I don't want, I don't want to go sleeping giant, but I think you could turn that into an eight to 10 game winner uh, in the G5. No, that's, um, I'd forgotten about Charlotte actually, because they were so terrible this year, but that is a, um, a pretty good one. They went full on youth movement this year. I'm assuming that's why he still has a job. Um, I just looked up the title of last year's Charlotte preview that I wrote. It's is the Charlotte 49ers uh, should become a successful startup in 2018 or so. Um, so there you go. You know, you can't, I can't imagine he'll get another year if he goes uh, one and 11 uh, this coming fall, but they return a ton of guys. Uh, and I think everybody understood that they were in a youth movement situation, but no, that's a very good one. And he was, it, it kind of seemed like he's been pushing things in the right direction. They were four and eight, uh, three and five in conference in 2016. Um, but apparently he's going to get one more year. And I mean, hell you're a startup, like be patient. That's, that's one of the things that you've got going for you is nobody expects anything yet. All right, get your get get like some pencil or paper out, or maybe like no, I don't know, a calculator. Not, but go for it. This one, this one's gonna, this one's got to be LAU to carry me on this. Dave Glaza asks uh, alternate reality question: Time shift the Wisconsin win at BYU with at Miami Orange Bowl win. I don't quite understand what he's saying there. I think Likely have been number one and twelve and zero entering CC conference, conference championship right with a top 10 away win do they make the playoff with a conference championship loss at 12 and one 
With the loss versus number six OSU, they'd have an argument over all four one-loss teams that got in. So what he's saying is, if at the beginning of the year uh, right. Wisconsin played at Miami instead of at BYU, um, are they talking about Wisconsin's bowl win? Yeah, well, Orange Bowl win. I mean, yeah, but he's talking about if they had played and beaten Miami to start the year instead of BYU. Yeah, um, but I, I don't know. Even in a hypothetical, I feel like that's cheating because you don't know that you're going to end up playing Miami in a bowl game. I mean, that's so. Is this just like he should have scheduled better? Is that what we're getting at? Uh, no, I think it's just that how close were how how close really was Wisconsin? This is a Wisconsin fan trying to talk themselves into having been really close, and I understand that. They're um, always really close. You're Wisconsin. <laughs> I feel like we're just legally required to do this Wisconsin question once, you know, once an episode. Yeah. Uh, I also don't think you they did not it. know that BYU was going to be exceptionally asked this year. Right. right. Yeah. No, I don't think there's an intent question here. I think he's just looking like if we had a little better win to start the year, would we have gotten in? I don't think so. Honestly, I don't. I don't think, no, I don't think so either. I think there's a stigma against you guys. Their stigma is the word of the podcast. <laughs> um, all right, let's just stay in the P5 because that's what we do. Dimitri Ravanos asks, given that part of Mike Loxley's job last season was to tre- to teach Brian Dable how to use a player like Jalen Hurts, would you say that Hurts' chances of getting the starting QB job have improved with Loxley being named Bama's OC? Man, that's some positive thinking. No. Yeah. It doesn't hurt it, but the problem I think, for Hurts now is that it sure seemed like Tua was a better quarterback. Like not, yes, you know, not stylistically, but he even yep. ran he ran better than Hurts. I don't know if I think what you're mistaking here, Dimitri, is that Loxley and uh, Dable. Dable, Dable, yeah, Dable, Dable. I've been saying Dable. That probably means it's wrong. You. I wouldn't trust you, Mister Dabo Sweeney. Um, you're not going to see a fundamental philosophical shift in the in the playbook. They're going to do the Alabama thing. So I think it's – I don't know if Hurts all of a sudden has an advantage. I don't see how Hurts has any advantage coming right. off of they, the way that – There's no question that Dable, Dabble, Doble um, – I mean, I'm scared now. I don't want to say it. <laughs> didn't there, There's no – like I think the joke I was making at like halftime of the national title game was like there's a Venn diagram where uh, here are the things Hertz can do, here are the things D- Dable can call, uh, and and there's this little tiny sliver of like three plays that he trusts uh, to call uh, for, yeah. for Hertz to run. Uh, there was certainly some of that. But, yeah, no, Hertz's problem is that with the same playbook, they were able to call a lot more plays for Tua, and uh, they worked pretty well. Uh, not not amazingly well. I don't want to pretend like he went out and torched Georgia for thirty eight hundred points or something in the second half. Uh, but they just had so many more options uh, with him at quarterback, and that's going to be the problem no matter who the OC is. Like Hertz just doesn't see. He's got a lot to offer. Just kind of seems like Tua has more to offer, and that's going to be his problem. I think Hertz is going to transfer. I don't think that's a bad thing for anybody. I mean, if they wanna, should, right? If, if they want to use him in like a Braxton Miller role, that'd be awesome. But uh, yeah, I, I would assume he wants to be oh, a starting quarterback. I know Baylor fans were immediately like, hey, 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 come, come, come. But, um, you know, it, I, it, one has to assume like in terms of the whole, the most logical answer is probably the right one. Yeah, chances are Hertz is going to transfer. I would say so. Andrew Job asks, uh, if and when the SEC expands, would they ever consider ECU? Uh, nope, they would not. <laughs> Um, the SEC is not really concerned so much with the um, with North Carolina specifically. It doesn't really provide them anything other than the fact that that's where the SEC network operates out of. Um, I think it's uh, man under okay under the current reasoning that we've seen in the last twenty years for expansion. 
which is television markets, right? Which mm-hmm. could all change as we move into a digital uh, ecosphere. Ooh. But but if we just kept it on television markets, Bill, you would want to expand outward and or consolidate a power. Um, if, they're, if they're going to expand anywhere, in, including North Carolina, just do NC State. You get Raleigh and you get a giant chip on the shoulder uh, program with potential. That's That's always going to be my answer. I mean, I think I think they would make a I think they would make strides towards picking up. I mean, it, it, who? By the way, who dies in this scenario? The Big Twelve or the? I mean, SEC fans are fixated on getting Florida State in, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Culturally, they should take Clemson because Clemson is a Southeastern Conference school. Um, I think logically, if we're having this conversation, the Big Twelve has died. Um, as it is occasionally does. So then my my answer, if you're looking at one school, which you wouldn't be, you would be looking at two schools. Uh, I, my number one answer is Oklahoma. And mm-hmm. my number two answer is probably Okie State. I, Can you think of a better number two? No, I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, when when people look at this right now, I don't even get the Florida State kind of feeling anymore. We, we interact with different fans, but still, like, I yeah. I think, like, the, the, the biggest names that pop up, pop up in a way of not thinking about the Big 12 dying, you know, basically trying to, like, the, the NC States, the Oklahoma States, the Virginia Tech has never quite felt like a, a beautiful fit, but Virginia Tech, uh, even, like, West Virginia, like, just you know, state by state and, and pick off a program there. Uh, but, no, you're right. Like, the, the next time that it, the SEC thinks about uh, expanding, some conference is either going to have died or change shape dramatically i mean i know i think the big 12 at this point is just trying to wait out the pac 12 and swoop in and save itself by by pecking away at the pac 12 but um and i mean god maybe it works but still like i i still don't think that well okay to circle back to the question no they're not it's going really to, nice it's that in 2018 you. it's really nice that in 2018 it's hard for us to answer this question and that we're right, not it's getting constantly harder. living with this crap anymore well, so that's I know, good, it's right? getting harder because of the tv side of the equation and how we're nobody's really sure of any answers at the moment that makes it a lot well, more fun thing to talk about honestly because we don't think we know the answers the reason why i didn't even think of virginia tech is that the grant of rights for the acc is like locked away for eternity so they're not leaving Right, it's just right. it's a non-issue. Um, yeah, they don't have a reason to. Clemson's got got it pretty good at the moment. Expansion expansion right now is is should not and is not on the table at the SEC. I think you have to find a way to stabilize the Big Twelve, which I think could be done without creating without without creating another shot heard around the world that that starts shifts across college football. I think this time they could do it if they would just reasonably take two of the G5 AAC teams and, and just kind of stretch out. Now, maybe maybe they don't have to. We don't know. Really, we're, we are sitting here pontificating because it, without really knowing what the paradigm shift is going to be, there will right. be a paradigm shift. I think it will be in the way that we monetize digital viewership and property rights, and we don't quite understand those things going forward because television ratings and, and traditional television networks – have shaped the conversation and that's all starting to go away because i mean if amazon blinks at college football it could change everything <laughs> yeah. it's it's true i mean i mean you look at the bidding so as we record this uh the thursday night uh nfl rights just got auctioned back off fox has won them and but the 
the, the sort of caveat on that headline as we record that this morning is the digital rights are still up. So for most of the people I know, um, the digital rights are way more important. Like I'm a, I'm a cord cutter. I don't have a traditional service provider. So if I want to watch the Falcons on Thursday night, the fact that they're on Fox doesn't mean much to me. It, but if they're on prime, like they were this past year, like I watched the Falcon saints game on my Amazon prime app in a cab in New York city during Piesman week. And that's not a, it's an exception that I was on the road, but that's how I will be consuming things. And I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, that's, that's sort of a closer setting for the way you might be consuming things in the future. Right. Uh, especially as these apps integrate. And it's one of the things I do want to work on in the offseason. It's more of an NFL story right now because the Sunday ticket stuff is still locked behind DirecTV. But consuming stuff between – televisions are going to be treated more like large-scale mobile devices here soon, and that's going to kick down the last little bit of being able to sort of stream what you want with live sports. But that's a rabbit hole I don't want to venture down too far <laughs> in right now. Bill, Amazon's, I got a question. Amazon's presence makes this very weird. Um, well, I mean, least- by the way, I, I threw out Amazon because Amazon was involved with the Prime streaming last year. Right. Apple is also just as easily. I mean, any of the big five, any of the big five in Silicon Valley, if they mm. blink at college sports, which they haven't really done yet, it will change everything instantly. By the yeah, way, like big that- five are Microsoft, which is the least likely. Facebook, yeah. which is already, uh, and we've already seen this with a yeah. really small, small, small streaming deal, really an experiment with the Conference USA games. Um, what's the other? It's there's, it's five. It's Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, and I'm leaving one out. Man, it's going to kill me now. Well, uh, just go to a halt. It's not Twitter. Uh, Google. Yeah, see? Google. Thank you. Google, of course. Yeah. So if Google decides as well, Google is, I mean, you're, you're seeing now with like YouTube TV, that's a Google property, which by the way, of the streamings last year, one of the PAPN listeners gave me their YouTube TV login. It was awesome. It was the best one for sure. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I belong to the PlayStation religion because of I'm, that's my, my gaming use of choice, but in terms of having something hooked to a television, but next year, I'm really hoping that YouTube TV is available on more stuff for football season. Um, all right, we got to stop there. I could talk at, <laughs> at an item about this. Let me just throw this one over to you. Um, Andrew Job asked, uh, wait, oh, sorry, I already did Andrew Job. Sorry. Uh, Brayden Hodges. Here's a bill question asking as an, uh, as an aspiring amateur stats enthusiast, does bill have any tips for finding or compiling stats? <laughs> uh, have we ever just told the pure origin story? You did well, this I, like, 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 like S and P is born out of your brain, but the, the desire to do it is born out of what? Well, I mean, the desire to do it was basically, I run a Mizzou blog, it's 2007, and I'm looking for unique content, what's available for advanced stats in college football. Um, and when the answer was, hey, not much of anything, then I used my general Excel skills to start uh, entering data into an Excel sheet. Um I mean, honestly, in terms of finding or compiling stats, there are a lot of services, a lot of services uh, that do stuff now. They all cost money. And so if you're not wanting to spend money, then really your best trick here is to get into the – the become very good at scraping, at data scraping, um, you know, scraping data, websites and – it basically, in this case, it basically means like anything that's on a website can be kind of scraped into your own file and 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 manipulated into producing data, more or less. Uh, moving moving columns around, moving the verbiage around, setting little rules for how to interpret um, 
that's a terrible definition, but I think it gets the point across. But basically, it's how do you how do I copy data from a website into my own uh, little data storage program uh, and make it usable as quickly as possible okay. without having to literally go down one distance ten yard line twenty five uh, run pass run Smith five yards, blah, 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 like I was doing in 2007. Um, I got really good at it. I could do a whole game in like 20 minutes. But uh, regardless, um, getting that whole, being able to learn how to scrape and manipulate data very quickly is going to be your big, biggest friend because if you're not going to pay for data and it really is pretty expensive, um, like you want to be get into the NFL, you can scrape all the NFL's play-by-play data into a into a spreadsheet and start working, or a spreadsheet, or or you know database, Python, whatever you want to use. You can get there pretty quickly, but it's those tools, those fancy tools that you probably need to get good at because that's how you compile data quickly. Um, finding data, it's you know if, if we're talking about college football, just go to the team sites; they all have play-by-play. Some of it is far more well formatted get, for scraping and whatnot. You're less, you're less grumpier. Less grumpy, less grumpy than you. Less grumpy. You're you're less grumpy in recent months about. Although you really haven't embarked on the off season too too much, but yes. last year versus the year prior, you I think you found more of what you were looking for more often. Fair to say? No, no. Nope. I would say I would disagree. Every wait, it's getting worse because it's not getting better because the the enemy for me when I'm looking for data or play by play or whatever on a, in a on a given team's website is mobile friendly. Um, everybody's trying to become mobile friendly. And what that typically means is instead of just having a big white background HTML dump of all the play-by-play from a given game uh, and all, all of the d- different defender stats and blah, 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 they've created these little blocky pages where you got to like, oh, click individual stats. Now click defense. Now I'll go over and click special team. Now click play-by-play. Now click second quarter on play-by-play. Oh, it's not there. It must have been in the third quarter. Click third quarter on play-by. It becomes a nightmare. And it, it becomes a situation where I've got to click 17 times to find what i used to be able to find in one i would make fun of you Um, for this but it does sound like because you do it because you're doing it in volume so often that does sound like it's pain in the ass i had a programmer friend um one time asked me like you know they he was working for a company that was potentially getting involved with some of the school website kind of stuff and he was asking me like you know you know you're a heavy duty user uh, user what what do you have in mind for a site like this i and i just basically said i am very much not your target audience uh because it's very clear like everybody thinks the market is shifting towards like the, the quick access kind of mobile friendly stuff you can view on your phone. Well, I don't give a crap about that. And so I'm really not your target audience. <laughs> Old man yells at cloud. Uh, exactly. This is a very much uh, cell phones kind of situation, but regardless, yeah, that sucks. And it still sucks. And, and as we've been putting together data, uh, my wife and I, my partner, my stat partner, wife and I, um, for the day, for the preview series and everything else. Yeah. The websites still suck for our purposes. Bill. That Gambrel guy asks, is it still possible to pull a FSU UF in modern college football? Can programs still rise from obscurity to blue blood status like the Florida schools did in the 70s, 80s, 90s? Which top 30 to 50-ish schools have the possibility of joining the top 15 programs of the next two decades? Um, That's a big question. It's sort of a loaded question. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that uh, you have to consider, or maybe the thing that you have to consider when you're talking about pulling a Florida or pulling a Florida State is that there were a confluence of events, the likes of which we haven't really seen, that involves everything from um, politics to economics to uh, minority relations. Seriously. <laughs> when you think about – no, when you think about Florida culturally going from the early 1970s to 
to today, um, there isn't a comparison, really. I mean, you can go back into the annals of American history, but in terms of modern college sports, which is what he's asking about, um, you have a massive influx of money, uh, uh, free market, big, fat, sort of conservative Republican business expansion, right? Like taxless enterprise, just plowing through and creating jobs. You have political progressiveness in certain pockets of the state in which um, African-Americans can live and flourish um, as the sport is now and probably forever will be dominated by African-Americans. So you have to mention that. I think that on top of that, you have to have all the things that you and I talk about all the time, which is you got to hire the right coach at the right moment at the right time. It's incredibly narrow to hit that mark. And it happened for both of these schools and that Bowden built a dynasty and Spurrier revolutionized things. And um, on top of that, you also have to have the presence of mind to recognize that all that stuff's going to happen in your booster core. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, To that end, I have been kicking around a theory. Okay. And I don't know how you can do it in in sort of a stats way. And the problem is the theory involves the SEC West and it just makes things so much harder. (laughs) I was convinced for a long time that Arkansas was on the verge of something, not with Brett Bielema or not really even with Bobby Petrino, but as Northwest Arkansas continued to aggressively expand and, you know, some of the things that Arkansas does makes no sense, right? <laughs> a lot. The little, the little rock stuff makes no sense um, at all. The, and what I mean by that is specifically this like never ending war of this booster sect of old Southern money, wanting more if not all games played in little rock at memorial it's so stupid um but arkansas in the northwest quadrant of that state the aggressive expansion that was going on what you had there was a major football power that's like has it already has the history so we just got done talking about charlotte right we just got done talking about those other schools like arkansas already has the history and it already has the allure to a degree and it's sitting in a boom area and it's got a proximity to Dallas and it's got a presence and a brand in places like Houston and, and a, a recognizability as you go into talent rich areas like Louisiana and the Mississippi Gulf Coast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So why not Arkansas as being like, like catch it as a catalyst now as more and more people move there as the population gets bigger. And also, by the way, you're, you have no competition in state, which is, which is rare in the Southeastern conference. So, why not Arkansas? It hasn't worked out so far, but I still often ask myself, like maybe 20 years from now, we look at them differently. If things continue to go apace up there, although Walmart is not the Walmart that it was right. 10 years ago. Right. That's I, a big, I mean, that's a huge thing you got to look at. Yeah. Um, and some Arkansas state fan somewhere just got really pissed off by the way. Um, well, they, look, they understand the situation. Yeah, we, 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 we cape for the G five, but I'm not going to ignore reality. Um, so, and by the Except way, that UCF won a national championship. By, see, uh, by the way, FSU and UF, uh, like pulling and FSU slash UF. It's a little, those, those are, are two different things. Those are very, two di- very different things. I mean, they, they they share similarities in that a they happen to live in a an exploding football population, which helps. Uh, in FSU's case, they did so right after desegregation, which also helped. Um, but UF was in a conference uh, and had been really close for a few years, but just couldn't stop you know cheating or at least getting caught cheating. Uh, and then they made one of the greatest hires of all time in Steve Spear, which among other things allowed them to, even though they screwed up the next hire, it allowed the, it helped them to land another amazing coach in Urban Meyer 
after Spurrier had left. So that's that's one route. Make great hires, be in an exploding football population, clearly have the want to, but figure out how to actually get your affairs in order and, and stop getting caught cheating. Um, so that, there was that path. But FSU is really, really, really unique in the way that well, they were independent. They weren't tied to the SEC. They weren't tied to the ACC or anything else. They were independent. They were able to go out and schedule really, 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 really aggressively. Um, you know, their, their schedules in the late eighties and early or the late seventies and early eighties, uh, it was a take on all comers thing. And it's, it, it was in a way that you can't really do that anymore. Like I, you know, in my book, the 50 best asterisk college football teams of all time available, available on Amazon. Amazon. Um, we just, we just re up for some Facebook ads. So maybe you'll see the book that way. Yeah. Um, 1981 Florida state is in that book. It was, they had their kind of their regional teams that they would schedule regularly, like Louisville and Memphis and Southern Miss, the other independents in the South. But they also in, in five in consecutive games, uh, with a bye week after the first one, they played at Nebraska, at Ohio state, at Notre Dame, at Pitt and at LSU. Um, they like that thing we always, well, we see a lot of FSU fans actually, like when, when we're talking about UCF, I got yelled at by a bunch of FSU fans, go figure about, you know, like, well, they should just schedule harder, you know? Well, sure. You know, number one, I think it's harder to schedule now because um, among other things like SEC teams in that time period, were playing six games, uh, conference games, big eight, obviously was playing seven. You had four, sometimes five, sometimes six um, non-conference scheduling opportunities. And that, that was a different environment altogether. When you, now we've got teams playing uh, as, as little as three non-conference games, it's a lot harder to go out and take on all comers because nobody, because those comers won't actually take you on. Uh, but regardless, Florida state lived in a time when they could go out and really, really aggressively schedule. Um, and they got really good schedules. And then for a while they didn't keep up. They went six and five in 81. They, they survived that little, that five game span. They won three out of those five came home, tried to lose to Western Carolina, lost to Miami, Florida, got the crap kicked out of them by Southern miss. And then the next few years, they were going nine and three, then seven and five, then seven wins again. Uh, they popped to nine and three, went seven and four in, in 1986. Like they barely barely got to where they ended up uh it was really difficult to go that path and i that path doesn't even really exist anymore what bill said there you go there's times where you're just so informed on the subject i can put the mic down and go pee and come back and i can also just be like all right yeah him and i feel like we didn't lose anything in terms of uh podcast quality. i did not just go to the bathroom but i was just saying there are times sure in which you 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 hit a certain gear and I'm like okay we're good here I'd like to make a sandwich Kansas so, let's ask a Kansas question God damn it I was gonna skip it because it was too on brand Go ahead Wait Kansas isn't a G for, oh actually right. Hey uh, Jesse Pound asks Assuming KU makes a coaching change in December how attractive is that job even though they should hire Willie Fritz <laughs> um, Yeah hire Willie Fritz um, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's it's getting it's, it's getting it, it's getting stigma i'm gonna go back to my word of the show it's getting stigma because this was supposed to be the one that worked if Beatty's Beatty is Beatty is just a custodian in the interim to the next guy i really feel for Beatty because he inherited possibly the worst p5 roster in P5 history, so P5 being like, let's just go, I always go modern college era, 92 on, right? So 
possibly the worst roster in history. There might be like an old <laughs> Baylor team that might be worse. Or Vanderbilt team. I, uh, Duke. There were some really, really good terrible call, Duke good call, good call. There. I feel like we're yeah. playing a few. So, Let's go. This is, that was a great... Show me terrible Duke. Ding. Yeah, they're, they're, that was a pretty grandiose statement, but it was bad. Um, they were – look, I, but the, hey, man, the eligibility issues and the the JUCO screw-ups of Weiss, I mean, it's we were in uncharted territory there for a minute. I, I – you know, we've talked about this before. Like, I was – disappointed in what they produced this year. This was a year that like I was very, I was always very skeptical on Beatty. Number one, I didn't think he had the experience level to engineer what he was going to have to engineer. Um, but they took the steps, progress uh, steps forward on de- defense in 2016. <clears throat> and they had a couple transfers on offense. Seemed like this was the year they could take a step forward, at least into the top 100. Uh, and they were objectively awful in every possible way this year. And um, that does not fill me with confidence when I'm talking about them returning 90% of production um, experience and potential talent didn't mean anything this year. So I'm not sure why it would next year either. Okay. All right. Hire Willie Fritz. We just just say sure. and get it over with. Yep. This is a weird one that came in right as we were setting up. It was actually we were recording earlier and we plugged it in. <clears throat> um, Jeff Schuler, uh, can I have a fifteen to twenty second rant to recite to people when they say Penn State should be tar- starting Tommy Stevens over McSorley? Bill and I. This can't be real. This Bill can't be I, real. So Bill and I dropped this in at like as we were we were typing to each other earlier on on the show. Dropped this. In. What? Huh? Like Trace McSorley is a damn I'm gonna need, Jeff, Jeff, I'm going to need a follow-up from you. I'm going to need some proof. I, um, yeah. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, I just not, – not because I – look, dumbassery abounds, okay? I'm not saying that part. But I just – Jeff, I want to meet these people. I want to know them a little bit better. I want to see them. I, w- I want to experience their I, – I want the I want their ephemera um, in a digital sense, all right? Because <laughs> I, I got to know. I got to know what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, Tommy Stevens, I understand that, you know, backup quarterback's always popular, and I understand that he's 6'5", and, and Trace McSorley's six foot. But yeah, I'm 6'5", if, if, and I fell down half the stairs the other day. If, you, if you're looking for more than what Trace McSorley delivers at quarterback, um, go – Actually, no, I was going to say, just go watch the NFL instead. I, you know, there's at least a third of NFL starting quarterbacks that probably don't bring as much to the table what? as Trace McSorley. Uh, uh, F. I, I, just, I mean, what? Actually, I fell, up these, I fell up the stairs recently, too. You ever done that? I fell up the stairs as I'm going up the stairs. So, and I'm six foot five, about 230. Prototypical. Maybe, um, maybe uh, less than 230. You are. That means you are Tommy Stevens, by the way. Oh, great. Well, then don't start. Don't start him. Um, what, Jeff? I'm going to need you. Jeff, I'm going to give you a little homework. Yeah. I want. I, I, I want to see. I want the screen cap. Show me the receipts. I want the receipts. Until then, I'm not even going to dignify that with an answer. Alec Forbes asked, "Did Lincoln Riley do anything significantly schematically different than Bob Stoops in his first year at OU, or did he stick with what worked in previous years? Should OU actually fire Mike Stoops, or is that just a fan base is overreacting to everything as they tend to do?" Uh, last part first, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I mean, fans, hey, fans, will always fans are always crazy. They're not always wrong. Right, uh, like 
they had a legitimately last three or four games of the year, first four games of the year or three games of the year. They had a legitimately good defense. Um, but the middle part is chapped ass from the Rose bowl or, I mean, well, they were, they, they were very bad in the middle of the year too. They had to win some shootouts. They, they couldn't put Kansas state away. Uh, they, they, they didn't Iowa put Iowa state away. They gave up 52 points to Oklahoma state. Like they, they got into some shootouts because of their own doing in some certain instances. Yeah. Uh, and, and you can probably find a better defensive coordinator than Mike Stoops. So that alone, maybe that means you should make a change. But as far as I um, know, on the first part, they, he did not, there was no fundamental shift in schematics. Hmm. Now, this is a good time to talk about being an OC and being a head coach. He is going to uh, most likely – there's no most likely. He loses a layer of supervision. So maybe there's some situational down and distance. We talk about shot plays, right? Um, you know, uh, plays after a turnover or something. If Bob was different or objected that Bob's, Bob, ain't, Bob don't work here no more. So right. I think it was less – about difference in scheme and play calling and more about decision making. You think that's fair? Uh, it's fair. Coach now, uh, I mean, I mean, it's just different. Right. And I mean, I, you know, I'd have to go back and think about those 20, the 2016 OU. I mean, OU really this year, they really did try to sit on leads once they got them and they were really good at it uh, against like Texas tech and whatnot. Um, you know, they would run, you know, lengthy drives in the fourth quarter to eat clock and do everything else. They would turn into almost like a power kind of old school OU team in that regard. And maybe that wasn't always the case at the end of the stoops era, but really, I mean, I think the major differences between this year and last year are just ski uh, personnel. Like they, you know, last year, DD Westbrook, had like more than twice as many targets as anybody else because he was D.D. Westbrook. Um, and they had Joe Mixon, you know, catching almost 40 passes because he was Joe Mixon. This year they had to mix things up. Uh, their personnel, you know, their top two actual wideouts were a sophomore and a freshman and Brown and Lamb. They had Mark Andrews stepping forward in a bigger role, but they, they distributed the ball to a lot of targets uh, a lot more frequently this year. They slowed down. They weren't as fast mm-hmm. this year. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, I think that started a couple of years ago. I don't even think that was a 2016 versus 2017 thing, but they have slowed down through the years. They did. They really did try to lean on that running game uh, when they had a lead and that backfired on them against Georgia because they couldn't run enough. Um, but that they did have that personality. I don't really think any of that was because Stoops left, though. So, yeah, you might be situational. We're going to punt on this situation. That kind of stuff may be changed, but I, I didn't really notice a change at all. I don't much. I, I really think the season goes about the same if Stoops is there and Riley's there, yeah. which I, I, I would assume or, or intend to make that a, a compliment for all involved. So, yeah. I, I, mean, yeah. I guess. Um, Oh, let's see. As we, we we're about ten minutes left in the show, a little bit more than that. So I'm going to start being choosy. Although this is a multi a multi tweeted question by Shutdown Dash uh, at So Damn Dashing. Um, this is going to skew more to the Bill side of things because I haven't really like picked apart the Texas roster. Um, <laughs> Texas was one I think I said it two shows ago. Where like I'm interested in that in that program <laughs> going into this offseason, going into this next season. Um, the Texas community has spent the entire season bemoaning the offensive side of the ball and a common excuse is that we ended up playing a true freshman quarterback and he wrote that in the SpongeBob meme uh, verbiage and a no and no good running backs all season. But other programs, Bama, Georgia, put in a true freshman quarterback and went far. How much of this is attributable to returning production? Here's where I petitioned to say older players at other positions 
then he says O-line for F's sake versus play calling versus having a true freshman that can just make plays. Sorry about the long question, but OU still sucks. Um, <laughs> um, I think, Dash, you're probably you're, – you're sort of answering your own question. Um, yeah. OU uh, – or not OU, I'm sorry. I, if, if, I like that we book in – I like we had a Red River segment here. Um, to, to compare Bama and Georgia's um, supporting casts yeah. uh, with Texas is just not fair. Georgia ain't going to lose Maryland, y'all. <laughs> That's how I put it in the talk radio sense. Um, in fact, it's a really, really good um, – if you're a Texas fan and you're looking at, at sort of how do you get there in the three years or five years or whatever it's going to take, it's a neat case study in that you don't really judge the quarterbacks in those situations so much as you do judge or, or, or you respect the support that's around them Offensive line, I mean, he made a joke about it, but that's a huge thing, right? Um, I think it's not so much coordinators because Tom Herman is very, very good at, at – extremely good at developing and catering to his quarterbacks. I mean, he helped juggle the situation at Ohio State. Um, I don't necessarily think it's that. I just think, for one – I mean, also, can we just – like, Alabama and Georgia have defenses, like they helped bail – I mean they helped bail those guys out in particular situations. Not a ton, but they're just fundamentally more talented at every other position. Yeah, I mean te- Texas ended up having a, good, a pretty good defense this year. But, it, you know, even in that sense, uh, they didn't have top five defenses. Right. No, that's, year, that's, yeah, I shouldn't say they, had, they, they didn't have defenses defense. if Texas doesn't, but they don't have – you know, we're talking about those, – those two teams played in the national talking title about game, the two right? national titles. Yeah, yeah. So don't – when you're arguing about playing a true freshman quarterback, um, maybe don't use Alabama and Georgia as your – Yeah, this isn't 2009. You, you, you're not that. Yeah, uh, you've got to get to you be, be that. Right, you can become that again, but you aren't that right now. And so don't even compare yourself to – you know, you're, you're comparing yourself to the other teams in the middle upper portion of the Big 12 right now. Um, and you should be able to exceed that. You've got a very smart head coach who, who has won a lot of games. And by the way, with a terrible offense this year, still managed to go 7-6, and six, still managed to beat – well, almost beat USC, almost beat Oklahoma, almost beat Oklahoma State, uh, really only lose control of one game, mm-hmm. the TCU game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they beat Missouri, uh, Grand that was with the best punt, punter performance I've ever seen in my life. But regardless, Missouri was a top 40 team. You beat them, uh, beat Iowa state who beat TCU in Oklahoma. Like it was okay with, especially considering how unsteady the offense was not only playing a freshman quarterback, but bouncing back and forth between a freshman quarterback and a sophomore quarterback, having a, a receiving core that went sophomore, sophomore, freshman at the top. Uh, yes. Having uh, some shaky running backs, but the top two running backs in terms of carries were sophomore more in freshman what's that this a, wasn't what's the, this was crazy this was a crazy amount of youth sorry what's the o-line return uh let's see let me pull up that spreadsheet since i've got 114 spreadsheets open at the well, moment uh, faster than i can it is a wednesday uh let's see we are looking at they lost connor williams uh they get back patrick uh, vahi or however you say his last name um Let's see. They've got of the well, among other things, they had nine different guys start at least one game this year. So add that to the issues. Uh, seven of them come back. 
So right, it was a it, it was a struggling O line that is, but for the most part, coming back. Because I remember reading this. The reason why I say that is like Herb Hand loves to rebuild. Oh, that's right, Herb Hand. I forgot. He got Herb, Herb Hand loves to come in after your after your kitchen fire and say, "All right, we can fix all this and put in some granite." And then I'm right. gonna, then I'm immediately going to leave. Right, right. He was wrong about being able to fix it at Penn State, but he was right about being able to fix it at Auburn. I mean, I think he was so, a year away from fixing it at Penn State. I mean, it's it's hard. To, Herb recruited all those guys that ended up being good alignment. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. he left. Um, yeah, and they still aren't that great, I guess. But regardless, yes, <laughs> like they had an unsettled O line, un, uh, super young receiving core, super young running back core, uh, where the one semi proven quantity was what Chris Warren, and he was injured and then left early, and yada yada yada. And you had a freshman and sophomore quarterback. Uh, that sounds like a nightmare, and it doesn't really sound like you can question the Tim Beck hire. I thought that was aiming low i guess you could say mm-hmm. uh but if you just assume that tom herman is the offensive coordinator here um then you know it is what it is um this is my favorite question i've received in a long time john carolyn asks what campus that y'all have been to has the best traffic parking transit setup <laughs> what's the worst i'm a student employee bus driver at the university of georgia so i like to think we do a good job um, thank you for your question, John. Um, I think Georgia does a great job. I've done two games there and they were fantastic. Um, I tend to think my alma mater has the worst because they have a very, very old campus. That's all interwoven with, with roads that are too small and don't go the right way. And then on top of that, Ole Miss had a stick up its ass shocking about building a parking garage in which like a time in which everyone else was. And so they'd never really handled the infrastructure concerns until way, way too late um and when they're good and then it's filled up like it's just a huge pain to deal with um most, most of campuses them, struggle to yeah. uh, accommodate 60 to 80,000 visitors or whatever what's, it ends up what's being. funny is the major powers are also large schools by i mean by and large um i can't think of the best football team with the smallest you know in, in the top 25 of the last 20 years and i'm curious what team has the smallest campus slash enrollment um, and it's still a big time football program, I guess Miami, but that's sort of a catch. Um, yeah. like yeah, of all Miami's problems, parking's not really one of them. Yet. No, there's, there's an ample amount of parking at that stadium. I've been there. Um, I, my point is that most of these big schools are know how to handle game day. So, um, you get into weird or unique situations, like getting out of Clemson, South Carolina is a pain in the ass. It's so rare that I can get a damn hotel room when I'm like on a game weekend in Clemson. I'm always staying in like Greenville or right across the border in Georgia is where I stayed the last time I did a game there and getting the hell out, not off of campus, but out of Clemson and back like inching my way to 85 is a, is an undertaking to say the least. Um, When Penn state has like what, like 18 hotel rooms in that damn city. Penn State is pretty bereft of hotels. I stayed in a in a bizarre two hundred year old bed and breakfast, um, an hour and ten minutes away for half of the trip during the Michigan week. I was on campus until Friday at, at Hampton Inn, right near campus, and then I had to vacate um, and stay at like some place I thought for sure was poisoning me um, or doing some strange, weird like Norman Bates action. Um, worst experience? I can't really think. Of, um, I've heard a lot of Texas fans complain before um, because right. the Austin because like thirty five runs through it and it's a mess and like um, trying to think of people who complain a lot. LSU does a really good job. Mississippi State does a really good job. These are places I just I've been to a lot. Um, 
Arkansas does a good job. Bama is extremely efficient. Um, yeah, I could see that. Auburn uh, used to, people used to complain about Auburn. I think Auburn's addressed their issues. Um, for those of you, uh, the most efficient and organized uh, game day parking experience I've ever had. I actually have an anecdote. You ready? Ohio State. Okay. They are good. If you have the right credentialing to pass, like with a press with a press pass, or uh, if you are a donor, or whatever tier, like they, as soon as you get to Columbus, they route you in. There's clearly labeled signs, um, and they get you to where you need to be. That's really good. So, okay. so go Bucks. Um, yeah, I think as far as worst goes, it's just really hard, and they're going to. This is the, this is the best question. This is man. <laughs> this is minutia. I love it. And I love that he thought we might have an answer for that. I kind of so do. I think he was. I, I think he was proven right. Um, K State was easy to park at. They're so friendly. Um, I got a parking ticket my one time. K State uh, going to K State. Yeah. Uh, this is the first question I posted in our Slack to get ready for this show, and we haven't asked it yet. Um, as we inch towards the end of the show, uh, and Keith Sharma asks. It says at Kane's fan. Oh wait, and Keith's asked questions before, but um, it's curious. Yeah. He he has a question, but it's about the Ducks. And he's a Canes fan, so you figure out what the connection is there. What kind of time frame does Mario Cristobal have at Oregon? In my mind, he should get a long leash, but I feel like the two former Oregon coaches, Kelly and Taggart, those aren't the two former Oregon coaches, um, do well in their new jobs. Cristobal might have an – oh, I, oops, sorry, Ankit. I was being mean before I finished the sentence. Um, I feel like the former – if to the two former Oregon coaches, comma, Kelly and Taggart, comma, do well in their new jobs, Cristobal might have unfair expectations – and seven and five, eight and four might not be good enough. Hashtag ask APN. Um, yes and no. Um, I throw out Taggart. He was there for he was there for a year. There's obviously some natural animosity towards those guys, and that they, you know, he and his staff were there for a year and they left. However, um, Jim Levitt is still there, Joe Salavea is still there. Um, I'm trying to think there's a, a fair, a decent amount of guys who are still locked in and still committed to Oregon, um, that stayed on that staff with crystal ball. Um, they're not really going to concern themselves with what Tiger does at Florida state. They are definitely interested in what Chip Kelly does at UCLA. That's the one that they need to look right, at. That's, that's more important to them at this way, moment. Yeah. Way more important. Um, I think Mario Cristobal should have an incredibly long leash. I think Oregon is not in the business of firing coaches. They've been in really weird situations the last five years. When you go back and look at Oregon historically um, with what Phil Knight and, and everyone else put into that program and the attitude that they have. Um, I like a lot of the things they do philosophically in their approach. But then again, they have the luxury of being that philosophical in their approach because um, they're richer than four foot up a bull's ass. So <laughs> they don't have to they don't have to want for things. Uh, I like that. Uh, I like the hire of Cristobal. I think he's going to be there for a minute. Um, they don't have to worry too too much about that. I think it works well, and I think that they will be fine with him, even if he is seven and five or eight and four this year. That means they are. They I think eight and four is the target this year, definitely. Um, but this is an Oregon team that you have to kind of check and figure out what prism you're looking at last year at it. You take away two injuries, I think this is a, a much better Oregon team than we saw down the stretch. Right. Yeah, you, you look at what they did with and without their starting quarterback. Uh, it was pretty stark. Um, and they really were close to doing a lot better. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, two more, Bill. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Here's one from our friend Tanner Spearman. I believe he is also, he is a Louisiana Tech guy. I believe he is also 
Sent us questions before. He says, hashtag ask PAPN. Bama and the SEC seem really insecure about UCF and are taking shots at them. <laughs> Trophy or it didn't happen, etc. Is the fact that they seem legitimately threatened by a G5 team a sign that things are, are moving in the right direction for the G5, albeit slowly, in terms of national respect? Uh, this is exactly wow. what we were encouraging a few weeks ago the only way that the g5 can ever maybe get some sort of traction is by complete by challenging the manhood of the sec and well and the p5 in general at every possible turn and while i've gotten sucked into a lot of twitter arguments involving ucf fans uh, that i could do without um bottom line is this is the only way it's going to work. And it, and you see Damon Harris out there, you know, like, where's your trophy? I don't see it. Um, like that shows that it's working at least a little bit. The problem is it goes away. Um, you know, just sustaining this, unless you've got another undefeated G five team next year, uh, whoever that might be, unless you've got another situation like that in FAU, I don't know. Um, where once again, they finish undefeated. Once again, they beat some P five team. Once again, they, they look the part. Um, it, it feels like the way these things normally go, there's a groundswell and it's good. And we're going to encourage fairness and all that. But the moment the G five doesn't have a UCF, everything goes back to normal. I appreciate Um, the way UCF is handling this. I am obviously encouraged it and and am (laughs) complicit in the effort and that effort is to go after the sec in the most southern way possible which is in the way in which you challenge someone's manhood down here is that you um drink too much you drive their car directly into their yard and you get out and holler at them until they come out of their front door at night or uh, until some local uh, constable shows up one of the two things will happen uh, either way you get a confrontation out of it so you continue to do that method until you achieve the desired results and i am all for it besides it doesn't even matter ucf won the national championship you go with that that's uh that's that's pretty good right there i um the entire, uh, like I've one, said this uh, before on the show, uh, if you yeah. listen to the show, you're in on the joke. It drives them insane. It drives them insane. I stopped retweeting it because people were getting bored. I, like people in my in my close circle of friends and colleagues, like were bored with it. But every time I do a UCF joke, last week, last this past Sunday was a Pro Bowl. UCF came out and they were honored, right? Mm-hmm. At the stadium in Orlando, Camping World Stadium. And... I did it again where I was just like touting the national champions and like they took like three minutes. I think three, I think five <laughs> minutes maybe of like pissed off Bama fans, plural. And I just, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> it's fucking, I think it's great. I can't stop, it's the only I can't way. stop doing it. I'm sorry. I'm going to be doing this they for just a while. Have, you just have to tweet them until they fi- they say, you know what? Fine. Show up. What? And like that's... what universe are you in where you're worried about this and you keep getting worried about this? I know. I just I can't. Someone showed me how to like. Someone showed me how to do this. Life has shown me how to how to needle a fan base that has a multiple <laughs> like like the most reviled currently the most reviled program and fan base in college sports. Right uh, by the by, and you find this thing that drives them insane in the moments after they win a national title. Like this is a gift. This is Excalibur for trolling. I will, I will wield this with might and power and with gratitude. So go Knights forever. I'm never going to leave this alone. All right, Bill, pick a last question. Um, do you want something on Saban retiring, something on UConn, or uh, um, something on Oklahoma State? Saban retiring. 
Okay. Uh, our friend Robbie Tinsley also asks us a good number of questions. He says, say Saban steps down in two years' time, handicap the race to become his successor. Uh, do you think Dabo or Kirby is the front runner? And who are some off the radar, can- radar candidates? Not Kirby. Um, Not Kirby at all. Kirby got no, him. I think Kirby's good. Kirby's is where he needs Kirby to be. Kirby got him in Alabama. Yeah, he's got him in his own Alabama, and it happens to be his alma mater. So why would he possibly think about leaving? Kirby will Kirby will dick around and flirt with someone like Texas or USC or something like that just to get a raise in a couple of years. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> probably weird. Texas. That that tends to be. Yeah. Tends Get you to that Texas works. money, man. He does everything like Saban, doesn't he? <laughs> Ew. Um. Fr- okay. First off, couch any concept of Saban retiring before any of us are are dead. Okay. There's zero right. indication <laughs> that that he is retiring anytime soon. All right. Um, when he, re- this was our chance to show some sort of he's falling off and Georgia has passed him and he won. So yeah, he's not going anywhere. I think, I think I was against the Dabo thing by saying he could build his own kingdom in Clemson and be God there. And if he wins another national title in the next three years, yeah. he is God there. But I've been in, in, conversational circles people have said look there is a thing about alabama to alabama people and and i tend to think that you look at weird carrots are dangled in front of like type a personality megalomaniac head coaches right nick saban could have won five national titles in probably seven years at lsu right and he has to try his hand at the nfl and then he goes back to a setting you know, one of which, and there are only a handful that, that that's better than LSU to sort of craft his war machine. Um, I think the same thing can be said for Dabo and that nothing Clemson is doing right now um, is wrong or bad. They're doing everything right. I think maybe he just wants to sort of take a stab at a run. The problem is this is not the Alabama. <laughs> this is, you don't, you don't come in after Mike Shula. You don't even, I mean, like, you don't even come in after Stallings. Like you're coming in after the best one, um, and that's it, that's why if I'm Sweeney, I'm just like I can probably probably crank out three national titles and retire at Clemson. That's <laughs> and, and then be the great and then be the greatest coach in Clemson history, right? Right. He's gonna blow past yeah. anything that um, you know Danny Ford ever did. Yeah, I, I mean. If, you know, in this fanciful scenario where Nick Saban doesn't, where Nick Saban retires before the age of 95, um, sure, like. Retired maybe in the Blade Runner sense and that someone finally just shoots him. (laughs) You, you go after uh, Dabo, um, you, you offer him $10 million a year and maybe that's all you have to do. Maybe it works, but if it doesn't. Like this is almost a good situation that there is no at this point there's nobody left on staff that is a like that it seems like a natural born successor because that's a nightmare scenario like in most cases like that that homegrown successor doesn't really work out all that well um, but this is a, a fascinating thing because there aren't any no brainer names after Swinney um, Chris Cristobal you know, would have to earn his way there he's one that I've heard mentioned right. before. Yeah, I mean, if Cristobal goes like if he's you know going twelve and zero and making the CFP in two or three years, sure. 
Because um, my thing is but, this. If I'm Mario Cristobal, to go back to the Oregon thing for a second, a lot of people are like, oh, no, it's another Florida guy. He's going to bolt. Well, one, Mark Ricky can go anywhere for a minute. And two, like, we don't know. We still don't understand the ceiling for Miami. And Mario's a super smart guy. He understands what the ceiling for Oregon can be and the advantages that he has out there. Like, Mario isn't called back to Miami the same way that, like, Dabo's called back to Alabama is what I'm getting at. So I think maybe he's a candidate. And maybe they don't, like, who knows, man. Maybe I just, I have a tough time formulating in my head everything I just, even though I just said all that stuff about, like, type A, alpha, competitive, coach, megalomaniac, like, the human being who wants to take over after Nick Saban. (laughs) (laughs) Like the ego involved in that human being. Well, because I mean, his heir apparent successor and the, and the real model, the re I think the closest model for who he is in another person in a former assistant just went to Georgia. So I don't know. I sure as hell ain't going to be. This is is a hell. Oh God. Uh, I mean, this is a hell of a reminder of how freaking hard it is to make these hires, by the way. Because, I mean, Alabama has made more good hires than almost any team, maybe more than any team ever has. They hired Wallace Wade, who turned you know, in the 20s turned them into Alabama. Uh, they, they replaced him with Frank Thomas, who went undefeated, let's see, one, two, three times, uh, has plenty of claimed national titles in there. Uh, they hired Bear Bryant. They hired Gene Stallings. They hired Nick Saban. They also hired Jennings Whitworth, who before at Bear Bryant went 424 and two in three years. They replaced Bear Bryant with Ray Perkins, which was, I mean, Perkins and then Bill Curry were both fine coaches but not amazing coaches, I think it's fair to say. Uh, they replaced Gene Stallings with Mike DeBose, Dennis Francioni, and Mike Shula. Uh, and granted, uh, Sanctions had a role to play in some, a couple of those hires. But like, it's really, really hard to make a good hire after making Man, a good hire. DeBose, Francioni, and Shula, those are some fun Bama days. God, it was great watching people lose their minds all the time. That's like what gave birth to Paul Feinbaum. So maybe it wasn't a good thing. Yeah, no, I'm going to say that was a very bad thing. But I do, it, it is fun always looking back at the Alabama year to year record before Saban and seeing them like 10 and 3 and 96, 4 and 7 and 97, 10 and 3 and 99, 3 and 8 yep, in 2000, 10 and 3 in 2002, 4 and 9 and 03. Wildly inconsistent and often beat it's by amazing. teams that were less talented. Um, all right, Bill. Whew. You know what the sad thing is? Didn't even scratch the surface. We still have a ton of questions. Thank you. Thank yes. you guys for submitting. Um, please don't limit them to Wisconsin and the group of five. We are more than that. Um, we are still that, though. We are still that, though. We'll be back with some questions next week as well as some possibly original content that we cough up in the interim, i.e. Bill writes something and I just read it. Um, we will have next Wednesday. I just realized this and I just perked up out in my chair here. Next Wednesday, we will have previews of Georgia State. Hello! Texas, or excuse me, Georgia Southern, my bad. Georgia Uh, Southern, uh, Texas State, and Louisiana Lafayette to talk about. Get at me. I'm ready for that. Uh, At at SBN underscore Bill C, you can get the 50 greatest uh, asterisk college football teams of all time, as well as football study hall on Amazon. My name is Stephen Godfrey at 38 Godfrey. Project X marches on, but I just wanted to mention that eventually here soon, I'll have something to promote as well. Uh, Really? Yeah, you know, girl. I've been doing stuff occasionally. I'll occasionally I go out and do a secret project. Um, same time next week. Um, I've run out of things to say, so we're just going to sign off. Roll Tide. Yep. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. It's amazing how much that pisses people off, by the way. Roll Tide. <laughs>